Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Edgar Bahio Rodriguez. Edgar is a lead data scientist in the Industrial Applications Division of Siemens Energy. Edgar, welcome to the Twimble AI Podcast. Thank you, Sam. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, I'm really excited to chat with you. You spoke at reInvent this year on productionizing our workloads using SageMaker. And uh, we'll be digging into that as well as uh, a number of other topics, interesting topics that we'll be digging into. But before we do that, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in machine learning, industrial machine learning in particular. Yeah, sure, Sam. So, yeah, um, I'm Edgar Bailo Rodriguez, now lead data scientist at Siemens Industrial Applications, as Sam mentioned. And as many other engineers, because I'm an engineer myself, a former energy engineer, I learned how to code by accident. And then uh, I was doing my bachelor thesis in electricity price forecasting. So it was when I started with the classical and more traditional time series models, ARIMA, exponential smoothing, and so on. And then after I did my, my master's, I was focusing a little bit more in optimization, mathematical optimization. And at the end, machine learning is uh, yes, another, yet another mathematical optimization problem. You just need to minimize some sort of loss function according to different algorithms or using different methodologies. And it was uh, after this master that uh, I started to focus more into the, the area of uh, machine learning, especially in time series forecasting again. I joined Siemens, and there I started with some of the uh, most classical tasks that you do at the beginning of your career, like some ETL, some data warehousing. And then we started to build a lot of prototypes, POCs, using machine learning, starting from, as I say, forecasting, but also uh, clustering, uh, some NLP and computer vision use cases. And the pile of prototypes started to, to fill up quite quickly. And it was this year uh, when we started our journey in MLOps and when we started to set up the architecture or the infrastructure required to really scale up analytics in industrial applications. Awesome. Awesome. It, it may be helpful to have you talk a little bit about Siemens Energy and your division and what your focus is. Siemens is a huge company that does a lot of different things. You know, I'm imagining all kinds of use cases relating to, you know, IoT and wind turbines and things like that. But what is it that you actually are working on there? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, Sam. Uh, Siemens is a very big company, but now we are Siemens Energy, a spin-off of Siemens. So we are roughly 91,000 employees and we are divided into five main, five main divisions. Uh, the one that I'm working on is industrial applications, which is roughly around 18,000 employees. And then we have, as you mentioned, the, the wind power uh, that is called renewables. Traditionally, it was Siemens Camesa. Then we have the generation uh, business. They are taking care of the big power producers as well as of selling solutions to decrease the environmental impact of already pre-existing installations, either Siemens or non-Siemens. The transmission colleagues that they manufacture transformers are any other kind of hardware that connects the energy system. And then the new energy business, which they work with electrolysis, uh, power to x uh, hydrogen cells, 
And yeah, basically the guys that they are trying to enable the rotating equipment to run with, with hydrogen or alternative fuels. And in industrial applications and distributed oil and gas, uh, which is my division, we basically service any kind of industrial equipment that you can think of. So we work with gas turbines, uh, medium medium gas turbines, um, small gas turbines, aerodiverative gas turbines, reciprocate engines, turbo compressors. So the, the portfolio is quite huge. Uh, I will not say that it's endless, but we have yeah a, a big segment of the market in industrial applications, I will say. So we cover quite a lot of products. Awesome. And with that in mind, you shared a few of the the use cases that you worked on in your reInvent talk. Can you kind of review some of those key use cases for us for machine learning? Sure. We have four main use cases or four main use cases that they push us to the cloud directly. The first one was the sales and operation and planning prognosis engine, which uh, I covered it in detail in, in my reInvent talk. So basically trying to forecast some operational KPIs that they are driving or service intervals for our machines. So as an OM producer, we need to service the machine, uh, bring new components, inspect and replace the components that they are damaged to enable the safe operation and the most reliable operation of this industrial equipment. We have also the dispatch optimizer, which is an external customer facing application where we are using machine learning to forecast electricity prices, the power demand that the demand is that the power plant is going to face, the fuel prices, the maximum available capacity of each of the units, because this is a parameter that changes quite a lot depending on the ambient conditions. And then we use all of this forecast to pre-schedule the operation of this machine. So we are trying to help the customer to deal with the uncertainty of the liberalized electricity market. So how to beat when you should go to a spot, when you should stick to your power purchase agreement. So a little bit of an optimization problem with machine learning on top. Then we have the data-driven sales. That is not a, it's not a classical machine learning use case, I will say. We are trying to uh, simulate the operational gains in terms of efficiency and, of course, decreasement of environmental impact when we do an upgrade of one of our machines. So we have some surrogate models of the efficiency and, and emissions of these machines that they have been created using machine learning. And then we try to estimate the impact of the upgrade uh, based on the historical running profile of the machine. And then finally, we have the probabilistic design use case that uh, this is a, I would say, a statistical use case. It's, it's not a machine learning use case per se, but we need to analyze a huge amount of data because we are looking to many sensors, many turbines, actually the whole fleet, uh, different components. So we are crossing a lot of data. And all of these four use cases, they have in common that this time series. Uh, the main data source. And because of the nature of time series, which is usually a lot of them, high frequency, high volume, we actually needed a better platform to to run this kind of analytics. Well, uh, so maybe this is, this is a, uh, well, this is going to be a, a dramatic oversimplification, but it sounds like at least for a few of those use cases, there's at the core, you're trying to build models of the machinery that your customers have out in the field. And then from these almost predictive maintenance types of models, you have different products. One is focused on you know, sales forecasting. One is focused on dispatching. One is focused on 
uh, helping the customer optimize the way that they schedule their resources. Is that the right interpretation uh, for this? So, I mean, we we are a hardware-based company, so the models that we have for, let's say, predictive uh, maintenance, they have they are what I will call white box models, so thermodynamic models that they they give us very good accuracy. When we are using machine learning is when we are trying to predict parameters that they are very hard to predict. This could sound like an oversimplification, but there is no white box model uh, behind the electricity prices. I mean, of mm-hmm. course, at the moment of the settlement price, you can try to find a way of calculating the electricity price if you know what is the uh, output of each of the generation technologies in this country. You can try to make a more physical or um, maybe even electrical-driven model. But when you are trying to predict when you in the future, when you are trying to forecast, you need to refer your predictions to information that you have available a priori. And precisely in these variables, they are... I will not say stochastically by nature, but that they are very hard to predict with white box models is where we are using machine learning. So in the other areas um, of our business, we have four thermodynamic uh, models and our white box models where we have uh, very deep expertise. Got it. Got it. Uh, and you mentioned that the models are, are all based on time series data. You also mentioned that that's where you you started, you know, earlier in your career. Talk a little bit about the, you know, both kind of the the evolution and the way you've personally worked with time series data and, and some of the approaches and, and challenges that you see today in working with time series data. How is, you know, machine learning, deep learning, all these things changed the the way you've approached things since uh, the early days? Yeah, that's a very good question, Sam. So. As I mentioned at the beginning, I just started with the most traditional approaches for time series forecasting. Arima and the uh, Arima, exponential smoothing, or maybe linear regression. And of course, doing some clustering uh, based on the internal features of the time series, like for instance, the seasonality, the trend, these kind of things. But machine learning has come with uh, a lot of strength into the time series field, I will say. I think that there are three main um, let's say, key takeaways from the incorporation of machine learning and deep learning in your time series uh, models or in, in your time series use cases. Looking into machine learning, we have different kind of uh, supervised learning algorithms like clustering algorithms specific for time series. So we have, for instance, dynamic time warping to calculate distant similarity uh, between multiple time series. And then we can cluster this distance using different kind of clustering algorithms that they can give us maybe another kind of information that the uh, clustering with the traditional internal features of the time series they can give to us. It is true that, for instance, the DW is uh, very expensive to compute, but still I think that there is some value there. The second thing that um, I think that machine learning and deep learning they have bring into the time series field is that most of the libraries or tool stack uh, that it was available so far most of the libraries are what? package, a very famous R package. It was designed to make one step ahead predictions. Meanwhile, uh, machine learning has enabled uh, different kind of forecasting strategies. So, for instance, the direct forecasting strategy, where you have different models per horizon and you all optimize your models based on this horizon. Also, it has enabled the multiple input output strategies. 
So to have one model to forecast multiple horizons at a time as well, without using recursive forecasting. And I think that also, especially now, that machine learning and deep learning, they, they can help you with time series that they are highly nonlinear, that maybe they are um, they have very high frequency, for instance, or very complex interaction between the time series itself. Machine learning can and deep learning, they can help quite a lot if what you want to do is to build one model to rule them all, if you want to call it like this. So instead of trying to build, for instance, a vector autoregression model, you can try to input multiple time series to an LSTM neural network and to predict multiple time series as an output. So this one model to rule them all, I think is a, a concept that is important. And I think that we only need to look into the M5 forecasting competition to see the results and to see that this, if I recall correctly, this year the uh, winner or the best approach, it was a combination of machine learning, traditional time series, uh, deep learning, and a lot of ensembles uh, on top to make different aggregations by, I think it was a store country. I, I will have to check the details, but this aggregation of information, this combination of the knowledge of each of the individual time series, I think that is something that you can do only with machine learning and deep learning. Mm. Uh, and so as you have kind of evolved the way you approach these problems to incorporate machine learning, there are a couple of interesting things that have come up for you. One is the fact that you use a mixed set of technologies to actually build out these models. And then I, I think hand in hand with that is the way that you architect systems around these kinds of models has changed. Can you, uh, you know, talk a little bit about the, you know, maybe that, you know, we'll start with that latter point and then, you know, work our way to the, the mixed technology. These use cases that you describe, the sales dispatch, the, the simulation and the probabilistic design, are these online or offline, you know, interactive systems and and how is all that kind of driven a set of architectural decisions for how you you know make them available to your users good question so i mean especially in the field of model serving i mean you you basically have two main approaches to serve predictions in your model either you do it on batch mode and on demand or in a scheduled basis or either you have a rest api endpoint to yeah, hit your endpoint and get the predictions whenever you want. But in the use case that we are facing, we the data usually comes in batches, uh, even that it comes quite frequently uh, with uh, one day or, or less. Every one day we receive data and even actually uh, faster. We do not have this uh, necessity in principle for the moment uh, in these use cases to have REST API endpoints as a serving. But even so, what it has changed is that if you want to have a full pipeline, you need to change a little bit your way of thinking because, of course, you can schedule this pre-processing for calculating your features, uh, doing the training, making the predictions, and then store the predictions in somewhere, S3 or a data warehousing. But if you do it like this, in this pure schedule basis, uh, you will not be prepared for what is coming next. And what, with that, I mean that you should always try to look for event-driven architectures. So um, you should to put, for instance, some lambdas on top that they trigger certain processes every time that you receive new data, because then uh, you are absolutely sure that if your data frequency changes from once per day to once per hour, you are covered. There is no issue. The workflow will run. 
it will just run accordingly to the new data that you are receiving. So I think that uh, first, the event-driven architectures are very important. The second thing is that, of course, we have time series and we have a lot of time series. So you could have multiple ways of approaching this problem. Either you try to adapt parallelings as much as you want, so kind of divide and conquer strategy, one very small model for every time series, or either you take profit of what I mentioned before about these uh, neural networks or more complex techniques that they can deal with multiple time series at a time. Independently of what you choose, you need to be aware that it will be certain challenges. So if you go with one time series per model, you will have very small models, very fast inference, but also you will launch a lot of containers. So you can maybe hit your account limits. If you go with uh, one model to rule them all, maybe you end up with a model that is 20 gigabytes or ever even more. So you end up with a model that is very hard to serve. So if you would like to put this into a REST API endpoint, the endpoint will be extremely expensive. So I think that that's the main things that you need to think about it or that it has changed in organization, the way of seeing things, that depending on how you are going to approach the problem, you will have certain advantages and certain disadvantages. But if I will have to, to choose for one, I think that what we have learned is that independently of which pattern you take, you can probably do it in an easier manner than you imagine at the beginning. At the end, ABS uh, is providing quite a lot of technologies. And of course, you can build from scratch, but you also can build on top. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, so all of these decision points that you were that you were elaborating on has kind of led you to develop a strong viewpoint about kind of the future of the way folks you know think about these applications and the a specific role of ML architecture or system architecture and the importance of that. You know, we talk a lot about data scientists, we talk about ML engineers, but this architecture piece is uh, really important to you. Elaborate on that and, and some of the ways that you've seen that play out in your business. Uh, yes, yeah, sure. So um, I think that this kind of roles that you describe it, data science, ML ops engineer, machine learning engineer, machine learning architect, they come with the maturity of an organization. So traditionally, organizations tend to have data scientists that they do a lot of a lot of POCs, and with this POC, you kind of can generate like a lot of expectations. You can be- build very complex and very accurate model, but usually, when you try to integrate this between your uh, in your applications or in your business process, the challenges or deployment and operationalization uh, they start to appear. And then is when the MLOps or the machine learning engineers, they come into place and they try to fix the, not the issue, but they try to, to put his small piece of sand in the ocean of machine learning to, to help us to, to build our systems. But the problem is that independently of what you are going to deploy, deploy or what model you have built, I think that architecture should come first because it's true that maybe you need to do some exploratory data analysis, some quick modeling, some you know understanding if the data that you have is sufficient, is good quality or not. But you should always try to design whatever you are doing with with the mindset of okay, maybe this not this year, maybe the next year, maybe in two years, this becomes a very important application. This becomes part of a bigger system, and I think that that is where architecture comes into place that you need to 
define the requirements of how you should deploy things, uh, define the requirements of how to you should write code because that will help you to go to production faster and that will help you to create value quite much more faster than if you don't have this setup in place. Mm. Yeah, it, it's funny the way you, you put that. It reminded me of a saying that we used to have at a, a former, you know, in a, a kind of a past work life. We were building these systems that were designed to be very scalable and we would run into situations all the time at enterprises that built some app thinking it was a throwaway app and it would become what we call unintentionally mission critical. Like it would be <laughs> introduced in some business process and get built on and built on. And all of a sudden you have very important systems relying on something that was never designed to be, you know, mission critical. And what you're saying is, you know, if you go a little bit further and engineer it right from the beginning or architect it right from the beginning using principles like event-driven, then you can have a higher level of comfort that if that does happen, you don't end up in a bad spot. Correct. I think that it's also important to understand that not every, also not every company has like a thousand of data scientists or thousands of machine learning engineers. At the end, machine learning is just becoming part of the toolbox that companies they can use to solve problems. But these companies, they have their core businesses and they have process to support, customers to support. So I think that uh, a good architecture, good architecture from the very beginning uh, will help everyone to maintain and sustain these applications. Of course, now talking from the machine learning powered base, but also all their applications. And that I, I think is, is going to become key because with time, machine learning is becoming more and more accessible. We are starting to have auto ML. Um, we are starting to, to have a lot of high level APIs to very complex algorithms. And I think that we should expect that in the next year, uh, machine learning will become more and more common. So I think that the next challenge will be a part of the operationalization also in the architecture side of these things. Mm -hmm. Uh, so one of the interesting aspects of the way you do machine learning at Siemens is that you do have these mixed technologies that you use to build models. Some of your use cases are based on R, others are based on Python, others are, are mixed. Can you talk a little bit about that and the challenges that it introduces for uh, your workflow? Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I think that Siemens Energy is a very big company, so there are a lot of people programming in different languages. We have software developers that they prefer um, maybe .NET. We have data scientists working with R, with Python. We have maybe statisticians that they work only with R. Or we have pure data scientists, very specialized in deep learning that they only work with Python. And this, yes, could present a challenge, but it also depending on how you approach that. Because at the end, it's just code, isn't it? The important thing is to have your, your code accompleted. The important thing is to build software according to best practice. And right now, pretty much you can build any code with Docker or you can build Docker containers that contain any kind of code. And you can build containers in R or you can build containers in Python. So, I mean, that that's not... I don't think that it could be a potential issue but if your team has become aware that there are these kind of best practices, I think that you will be able to succeed or you will be able to, to avoid the wallet of the interoperability between the two languages or three languages. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of the areas that has changed in a huge way over the past, I don't know, 10 years or so. You know, when we would I'd talk to technology companies that were trying to enable machine learning 10 years ago, the big challenge was that you'd have these statisticians before we were even talking about data science, data science, right? They were building these models in SPSS and R and SAS and things like that. And then they'd throw them over the wall to someone who had to like code them from scratch from, you know, C and C, Java. Java. Uh, And a lot of companies came around just to try to bridge that gap in one way or the other. And now with today's technology, what it sounds like you're saying is that it doesn't really matter, you know, throw it into a container, have some known entry points and just, you know, let your, you know, hopefully your ML op system is container-based and can just deal with whatever you throw at it. Am, am I getting right. that right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Of course, there was some some challenges at the beginning. So especially in the art ecosystem, we got uh, the version one of Plumber quite recently. That is to write REST APIs natively in R. Uh, okay. Before, of course, you could do it as well. But I, I know that there are some teams outside Siemens that they were wrapping our code into C++ or uh, writing the interface in, in Scala, which was surprising to me, but it seems that it's a common pattern. Um, no, no issues with Scala. It's, it's not that I, I didn't know, I didn't know what, what people were doing around this. Um, Let's not get the Scala fans going. No, no. <laughs> But yeah, but the, the thing is that the language also evolves or the languages and the packages also evolves in the same way that the, uh, let's say, cloud technologies, they are evolving. So just to put you an example, now in Lambda recently, it was announced that you can run containers in Lambda, always that they, uh, they, run, they are less than 10 gigabytes, if I recall correctly. So that also enables the possibility of maybe running R in Lambda which uh, by default is not possible. You need to write your custom runtime. And I think that, uh, yeah, this is going to be more and more common that we will have new languages, you know, coming into the play. But overall, the whole enterprise sector is becoming more and more professional with this kind of good software practices. And the cloud providers and ABS, they are making this easier for us. So I think that that at some point in the future, maybe this language discussion... uh, C++ versus Java, I don't know, R versus Python, <laughs> yeah, R- Roost uh, versus uh, Go, uh, I don't know, maybe this uh, hopefully goes away. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You've mentioned Lambda a few times, and, and uh, serverless is a technology that uh, has come up, you know, I think a, quite a bit on the, the podcast, but not a ton. And Lambda is AWS's serverless technology. I'm wondering if you can maybe elaborate on some of the ways that you use serverless and Lambda in your workflow and your pipelines. Sure. So usually you use machine learning. The common use case that I see of the Lambdas is, of course, to run inference if your model is um, very small. If you have, for instance, a TensorFlow model, it could be a little bit challenging uh, because of the three gigabytes layer uh, limit. Uh, now this went off, so probably we will not have this issue anymore. But it's quite common to use Lambda, or I think it's even compulsory, when you are going to configure a step function workflow. So a step function is the orchestration layer of natively from ABS, uh, even that now 
before reInvent, I think that they also announced uh, support for uh, managed Airflow, um, another okay. workflow. Yeah, another workflow scheduler. But basically, in in the step functions, you configure the payload of your step functions with a lambda. That could be one of the use cases. And also, you can use this lambda to inject um, hyperparameters into your uh, training jobs. So if you are going to, for instance, run a complex pipeline where you have multiple algorithms, depending on the event type, is this is, for instance, a GTBoost or, I don't know, random forest, then you could load one set of hyperparameters and then send it to the training container. So I think that that will be the, the common pattern of the usage of Lambda in machine learning. And also another common pattern would be to fetch maybe the results of the hyperparameters. So imagine that you have, I don't know, five different algorithms, ElasticNet, CTBoost, Random Forest, and LSTM Neural Network, a support vector machine. And you have launched hyperparameter tuning for each of these five. So if you want to select the best of the best, probably you will have to use a Lambda because the hyperparameter tuning job will give you the best support vector machine, the best SGT boost, the best random forest, the best so on, so on. But if you want to select the best of the best, either you persist in database or you can maybe fetch it with, with a Lambda after the training process is, is finished. Mm. And uh, just out of curiosity, for a while, one of the, uh, at least in the early days of Lambda, one of the challenges was that you'd have these kind of separate artifacts, functions all over the place, and it was a little bit difficult to kind of manage them as a, a unified system or code base. Are there tools that you're using now that are making that easier to do to integrate Lambdas into a larger system architecture? That's a very, very good question, uh, the Lambda rabbit hole. <laughs> so <laughs> if you have thousands of microservices that they are built on, on Lambda, I, I agree, you could have an issue. Of course, we always try to to keep things as simple as possible and to do it project basis. But it is true that if you want to join or to harmonize and have governance of all of your microservices and you have all of your microservices implemented in, in Lambdas, this could be a challenge. I am not a, an expert on the topic, but I know that some people is using is putting GraphQL on top of Lambda to mm-hmm. manage the microservices. I know also that the, there are some companies like Uber that they have very interesting approaches to their microservice management, Netflix as well. But uh, in the stage that we are for the projects that we have, uh, we have not come with that issue, at least not yet. Okay, so still can be an issue at certain levels of scale, but if you're, you know, even at what you're the level of what you're doing, you're not really running into it as a big blocker. Cool. So, are there any unique aspects of the kind of industrial nature of the problems that you're trying to solve that uh, have come up for you? Yes, they are. As I told before, we are a hardware-based company. And we have a lot of knowledge of how machines work. So uh, with that means that we know exactly what can cause a machine to go wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. And we can see that in any of our, let's say, thermodynamical calculations that we run on top of the sensor data or the ones that we have for our digital twin. So as a, let's say, hardware-driven company that it has so big knowledge into this white box for physics-driven models, when machine learning comes uh, into play, people want explanations. 
So yeah. explainability, I think that is a very big topic, especially in industrial sector, because at least at Siemens Energy, it's not only that we service the uh, the equipment, we, we also design it from, from the very beginning. So we select the materials that they are going to go into the components. We put all of the components together. We make the designs. We manufacture. Uh, then we we service it. We sometimes even help with the operation. And we also repair also sometimes uh, the uh, the components that we have manufactured. So people really want explainability in, in this field, I will say. Another challenge that I will say is that this field is especially is very new. And when when you have had something that has built with years and years of experience, when something so new comes, that especially comes so fast, you can be a little bit hesitant to, to adapt it, especially because you have in-house solutions that they are working very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the topics that, or themes even, that has recurred in some of my conversations in the podcast, especially with folks in the research side, is there are a bunch of efforts to try to fuse kind of physics-based models and statistical models together so that they're not these two separate islands that aren't informing one another. Are you doing anything on that front or, or have you found anything that it, you know that works and is easy enough to use? A lot of what I've seen is on the research side. No, no we are working on that. And uh, again, the fact that we are... Uh, hardware-based company, that doesn't mean that the statistics was in our DNA. Uh, I mean, at the end, uh, any kind of component that we design, we evaluate the risk of failure, for instance. This this has played a a big role into an organization. And of course, I mean, I will not like to simplify or oversimplify machine learning to statistics because all of us here, we know that this is not true, but this is closely related. So what I'm trying to say is that we are working into that direction. We are working in enhancing our digital twin that is thermodynamic driven with also some uh, machine learning technologies. There are still nowadays some calculations that they are very expensive to do, like for instance, CFT simulations. And we think that... that computational fluids or the CFD? Fluid dynamics, correct. CF, okay, um, CFD, yeah. yeah. So when we are trying to simulate the temperature profile that a blade will have and so on, the simulation is very expensive. And we think that there is potential to use machine learning to either speed this simulation or to either maybe make a surrogate of these simulations that can run very fast and is good enough. Um, so we are working into, into that direction. Maybe going back to the machine learning and architecture part of the conversation, you know, we started talking about your your talk, which is like productionalizing, operationalizing, and, and all that kind of brings up ML ops and, and that operationalization element. Any interesting things to say about the kind of that pure operationalization part, you know, keeping this up in production, monitoring it, managing it over the the long term. Uh, What have you learned there? Well, what we have learned is that we need to manage it automatically because we have many models. (laughs) That that is probably the first takeaway. I mean, of course, you can have one person approving and so on, but depending on which kind of approaches you take, uh, you really need to automatize this process. I talked at the beginning of the conversation about that you can have, for instance, one small model for every time series, or you can have 
uh, one for all. So if you have a lot of time series, then you have a lot of models to supervise and monitor. So I think that one of the lessons learned is that you need to automatize as much as possible this process, but you also need to be able to trace back anything that fails. I think that that was one of the main takeaways. So model registry, proper CI/CD pipelines and code versioning is very important. And also I think that from the, I will say, challenges of the MLOps uh, side is traditionally the um, uh, model monitoring approaches that we have seen. They, they are what I call passive model monitoring. So meaning you usually, meaning that um, you usually schedule a monitoring job that is checking the data that you have receiving and that you use for training. So you need to schedule this process. And if you detect a deviation between, let's say, the, the two populations, then you will trigger a retraining. But that doesn't necessarily mean that your model is going to underperform. So what we call active monitoring strategies, which is based on a current prediction error, is something that we we think that is cheaper uh, to maintain because you will only retrain your model when you really need it. It is true that to have this feature drift or population drift calculation is useful for explainability purposes. But we think that active model monitoring is the way to go. This active monitoring, is this something that you've had to build yourself or is this something that the platform gives you for free, so to speak? So this is something that we have to build ourselves, uh, but it's one of the new features that you will find into SageMaker uh, this year. So if I recall correctly, now it's called Model Metrics Monitoring. Uh, it's in the new version of the documentation. So I, I strongly suggest to everyone using SageMaker that goes to the new documentation and, and see for the new changes. But yes, we, we had to implement it from scratch, especially for our use case that was time series based. Mm-hmm. And the the key idea there is that you're monitoring the drift. Is it with every transaction as opposed to in larger batches or is there a different approach you're taking? And it's an event-driven workflow. So every time that we receive new data, we calculate the features that we need for inference or that we need to, to make the time series predictions. And then when we have the predictions uh, that we did last week or last day, we compare with the data that we have received. Mm-hmm. So if this data that, of course, the problem with time series is that you cannot compare when you are predicting because right. you predict and then your data gets received with some uh, lagged time, I will say. So you need to wait until you receive the, the new chunk of data. And if you forecast for, for instance, the next day, you might have to wait one day. If you forecast for the next one week, you will have to wait one week and so on and so on. So if you use a direct forecasting strategy, this could become very, very complex. Mm. So the the idea is that based on this event-driven paradigm that you described earlier, you build from the very beginning, as soon as you get data that would allow you to compare your predictions, you have a process that automatically does that prediction, and that's the active part. Correct. So the, the active part is that Every time that you have received new data, you compare it to what you forecasted previously and you do it whenever you receive this event or this new data. And then based on that, you decide if you go to retraining or if you still make predictions. Got it. Awesome. 
Well, Edgar, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us and share a little bit about what you're up to. Very cool stuff. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Hans. It was a pleasure to talk with you. And thanks to Imari for sending me the invite. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.